You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Grant Partrick. My name's Grant. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I have the privilege of pastoring this location of our house. I love this a family of people so much. I'm excited to get to open God's word together uh, today. And I've loved this journey that we've been on, Call on Heaven. I hope it's been as powerful for you as it has been for me. I hope you've been finding this resource uh, helpful. Uh, I've loved kind of digging into it uh, every day. If you haven't been here, uh, there may be a few of these left, but everybody can jump in online. And uh, we have this day-by-day guide as we're on this 25-day journey of fasting and prayer. So just wanna invite you to jump on that if you haven't Yet, and if you haven't heard the first two messages, the first week from Pastor Ben, kind of around us uh, cultivating a hunger for God, and uh, last week with Pastor Louis about being for people, uh, really, really powerful. And uh, Louis gave us this definition of fasting last week. Uh, if you were here, uh, you tried to write it down like I did. I got to the third word, and then I gave up. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll go a little bit slower today, and maybe we have it on the screen. But this was the definition he gave us last week. Fasting is creating space through the withdrawal from earthly appetites in an intentional and concentrated effort to access the things of God and God himself for satisfaction of the soul and supernatural breakthrough. It's powerful. Fasting and prayer together is a powerful combination and a praying church is a powerful Church. I'm convinced that one of our greatest, uh, most powerful weapons and the most underutilized weapon we have is prayer. And it's been powerful for us to collectively leverage our voice together as we call on heaven. Um, this past Tuesday, we did not uh, gather together to call on heaven because we had a snow day. Hope you survived. Hope the roads weren't too dangerous for you. Uh, I don't, that was a joke uh, for everybody, that I got the email, when we got the email that the school had canceled, my first thought was, man, we are so soft here (laughs) in Atlanta. Just crosses below a certain temperature, and just, it might. So let's go ahead and cancel everything. Um, But it was really powerful on Thursday to gather via Zoom for prayer, and I loved watching the chat at the end of our time. People could just put their prayer request in, and immediately people are praying for you, praying for you. And it was, it was really, really powerful. So that's gonna happen again this coming week, Tuesday morning. Uh, we're gonna be here in this room at 7 a.m. praying Thursday at noon on Zoom. I wanna invite you to jump in on that. James said it this way. He said, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I'll never forget reading this quote from Spurgeon that said, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. I love that. It's important for us to understand as we've been talking about this desperate prayer last week, are we desperate enough to pray these kind of prayers for our friends and for our loved ones? And as we talk about desperate prayer, it's important for us to understand that desperate prayer is not just a defensive plea from a position of distress, but it is also an offensive call on an almighty God. And you see that over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. So as we move through uh, this collection of talks, today we're gonna land around being for the city and that's where we'll be uh, in the Call on Heaven book for the next week as well. As the prophet Jeremiah writes, 
um, that we, the people of God, are to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. We are to be for the city. And that's not a Passion City Church cultural value. It's not a, a, a few people that got together in a room and thought, what should we be about? We should be about this and we should be about that. No, it really is a biblical mandate for the people of God to plant themselves in the city which God has positioned them and to seek the peace and prosperity of that city. So today we're gonna look at a man uh, who was full of desperate prayer and who sought the welfare of the city in the book of Nehemiah. So I invite you, if you have your copy of scripture, to turn there. It's right after all the first and seconds. So you go first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. And uh, I'd love for you to turn there so you can see uh, some of these things. We're gonna read a good bit of scripture together today. Nehemiah is an incredible book, by the way. If you haven't read through it, you can read through the whole thing in one sitting pretty easily. It's often looked to or referenced for leadership principles and advice, and it is loaded with that, and it's great for that. But it is so much more than a leadership book. It's a book about the reality that God keeps his promises to his people. So we're gonna look at uh, the first chapter. We'll read the whole first chapter together and a little bit of chapter two. Let me just try to set a little bit of context for where we're kind of dropping in. So in 586 BC, uh, Babylon conquers and and destroys Jerusalem under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And he forces the people of God into exile. And and we know if you keep reading or if you're familiar with the story of God that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was just simply an instrument in the hand of a sovereign God, that God was really sending his people into exile uh, for their unbelief, but also to cleanse uh, his people. So that's 586 BC. In 539 BC, less than a century later, Babylonian empire is defeated uh, by the Persians. And the Persian king, King Cyrus, gives permission for the Israelites who had been in exile to begin to travel back and to return home. And many of them do uh, in Ezra chapter three uh, under Zerubbabel. So there's a great name if you're pregnant and looking for a name, I'd recommend that one. Uh, They wouldn't be able to spell it till they were a junior in high school, but it'd be awesome. Uh, Many others are are led back through Ezra and Nehemiah will uh, will lead the third group of exiles back into the land of Israel. So that's where this story is picking up, Nehemiah, beginning in chapter one, verse one. Follow along with me. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem, the city. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. Some translations say they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, what a prayer, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself. There's a lesson in that. He's not praying for them. He's included with them, including myself for all the ways I've wronged you and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Verse eight. But remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. This no doubt had been their reality. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength in your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So, so this is his responsibility. This is his role. This is his job description. He is a cupbearer to the king who, who, who oftentimes would kind of operate as a chief of staff of sorts. And then beginning in verse two, I mean, in chapter two, in the month of Nisan, now we're in that month in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So this is the man that, that in chapter one, uh, Nehemiah is praying, give me favor with this man. Who is this man? It's King Artaxerxes. And he says, uh, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? when you are not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, like, help me here, God. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, then let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? You know, like, how many vacation days you got left this year? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time to go. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide for me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. All kings, by the way, work for God in one way or another. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So this is a man 
who was seeking after the welfare of the city. And I want you to see a few things from these verses together. Number one, I want you to see that the brokenness of the city broke Nehemiah. The brokenness of the city broke him. Look at verse four. It says, when I heard these things, when the report made it to me, when my brother came and he gave me the report, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So when he saw the brokenness of the city, when he heard the report coming in, it did something to him. It broke him. It broke his heart. It broke his spirit. He began, his eyes got welled up with tears and he, he did three things. His first response was that he wept and he mourned and then he says that he fasted and he prayed. He, he didn't blame them. He didn't complain about them. He didn't post about the poor decisions that they were making and that they probably deserved the ruin that they were in. He sat down and he wept for the people that he loved. And I wonder for you and for me, if we're gonna be people who are for the city, does the brokenness of our city do anything to your heart? Is there any part of your heart that is still soft enough to feel the burden of a city who the overwhelming majority of the city don't know there is a God who loves them. And when you see the news stories come by, does it do anything to our heart? Because it certainly did for Nehemiah. And I wonder what if this was our reaction? What if we could ask God somehow today to like tenderize our hearts to the brokenness of our city, that somehow by his grace, he would scrape away some of the callous layers that we have on our hearts? And what if before we complained about the things happening in our city, we prayed for our city? What if before we rolled our eyes about another thing going down, we got on our knees? You know, for so many of us, myself included, it's easy because of the pace at which the brokenness comes by our eyes now. It's so easy to see something that's just the devastating consequences of sin in a broken world, and we see it come by our face, and we're like, you know what, I don't really like the way it feels. And so rather than it burdening our hearts, rather than it dropping us to our knees, rather than it reminding us, I have access to holy God who can change this place, we just swipe until we get to a happier place for ourselves. And if we are going to be for our city, we must have room in our hearts to feel the weight of the brokenness of our city and to know we have the opportunity to lift it up to a holy God who can do something about it. What if we did those three things just like Nehemiah? We mourned and we fasted and we prayed. And, and notice his commitment here. It wasn't like a, you know, like a, a one-time project. It was a long-term commitment. So in Nehemiah chapter one, we're in the month of Kislev. And then in chapter two, we're in the month of Nisan. That's like four months. And he's fasting and he's weeping and he's mourning and he's praying and he's waiting for God to move in the heart of a king so that God's plans for this broken city can be initiated. What if we were to be those people with that kind of a commitment to be for the city? The second thing we see in this text is that he was willing to be part of the answer to his own prayers. So he wasn't removed and distant going, hey, I'm over here, I'm gonna pray for them over there. God, you go do something for them over there. No, he prayed and the God he prayed to said, great, let's go do something about the wall that's in ruin and I want you to go do it. And so he was not just willing to pray, he was willing to move. And it was costly to him. Like, look at verses two and three in chapter two. He says, I was very much afraid. 
not great English, but uh, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king anyways, like I knew this was gonna cost me. I knew there was great risk in this, but even amongst the risk, I knew that the reward was greater than the risk. And we get in that place in our own lives. Like if you see brokenness in this city or if you see an opportunity that you could serve or you could meet someone's need, there's oftentimes very quickly this voice that comes into our head and go, I don't know, it's kind of a bit of a risk. Like what if it doesn't go good and I don't really wanna complicate my day and I already got enough to do today and I don't know how they're gonna respond to that and I'm not, is they, you know, are they even gonna want that or how's all this gonna go? And so we begin to calculate all the risks in our head and then we just go, ah, you know what? We'll wait for somebody else to do it. But the reward is worth enduring the risk. Like what if you did? What, what if you did talk to the person that you're working and you told them what God was doing in your life? And what if it wasn't awkward, but what if they went, huh, I've actually been really interested in that because I'm going through a really hard season in my life. What, what's, what's worth more, the, the awkwardness of if it goes bad or the reward of if it goes good and we win people over to the eternal kingdom of God? We ought to be people who are willing to endure the risk of stepping into the brokenness of a city with the hope and promise of a God who can restore. And at the end of the day, the outcome's not our job anyways. Our job is just to be obedient. Obedience is our job, outcome is God's job. And he knew this, Nehemiah knew this. So even amongst the king, he said, man, I'm nervous about this, but I'm gonna endure the risk because the reward is worth it. And when Nehemiah heard of the trouble, the distress, the shame of the people in his own city, he didn't say, well, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm over here living in the citadel of Susa. This is the winter palace for the Persian kings. I got it pretty good over here. I got all the food I want. There ain't no walls tumbling down around me. I'm in a castle over here. I'm in a citadel over here. This is going great for me. No, he didn't do that. He, he, his heart was with the people. He didn't go, hate it for them, but I'm safe here. They probably deserved it. No, his prayers led him to move into action. He prayed and then he followed the God who answered his prayers and he was a part of the answer to his own prayers. I love this quote from H.B. Charles Jr. He says this, we maximize our kingdom influence by godly engagement, not by spiritual withdrawal. Third thing we see in this text he expected opposition and pressed forward for the sake of the people and for the glory of God. Nehemiah had opposition literally at every turn. There were people lying about him. There were people lying to him. There were people making fun of him. There were people threatening him. The headers, which you know are not the inspired word of God, people came in, very smart people came in and put them in afterwards, so no knock on them. They're actually great. They're just not part of the inspired text of the word of God. But in my text, it's opposition to building the wall. Next title, more opposition to the wall. Next title, Nehemiah endures more opposition. And yet amongst Every turn through all the opposition, he continued to do two things. He prayed and then he followed the God who answered his prayers. And the truth is, if we're real honest, that we are just less willing to endure opposition today. But I pray that as we look at Nehemiah's life, we would understand and be reminded that we are in a spiritual battle. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. This isn't our home. This isn't where we're gonna live forever. The Christian life is a fight. It's, it's like a battleship, not, a, not, not you know, a pontoon boat. 
And we're meant to be geared up. We're given weapons of spiritual warfare to be in this fight. It's light versus dark and tucking ourselves away in a corner so that we can stay safe in the citadel of Susa so that we can just look out for ourselves and try to ride it out till Jesus comes is not living out the plan and mandate Jesus has given to his followers. It is not faithful to what he has asked us to do. That even in this broken world, a world in which Peter calls us aliens and exiles, a world where the promises, uh, where there promises to be lots of opposition, we are both exiles and ambassadors. And it is our opportunity to plant our roots here not just to disengage and hide away for a better future, but to seek the welfare of the city, to call on heaven and to be part of the better future that we believe for, for the city. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote this, and I love it. He said, the great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful providence with his own hand, planted me here, where by his grace in this part of his vineyard, I grow, and here I will abide till the great master of the vineyard thinks fit to transplant me. This temptation to just disengage, to live above the surface for a while, to not sink roots deep down certainly would have been the temptation for the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. We read about it in Jeremiah chapter 29. Babylon's not exactly an ideal place for a faithful Israelite to call home. And yet that's where they found themselves for 70 years. And they were tempted to sleep with their bags packed, if you will, not put any roots down into the ground, to live lightly among the soil, refusing to embrace the city that God had led them to, living lives more like a tumbleweed than a tree because they hoped not to be there for very long. And while it is true for us, we also are exiles. And in the grand scheme of things, we will not be here for very long. We are going to live with King Jesus for all of eternity. But for this moment, he's planted us here, not to be a tumbleweed just living lightly among the soil, but to plant and to put roots down and to anchor our lives here and to seek the welfare of the city. That's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Do all the normal things. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, when the Israelites heard this from the letter of Jeremiah, they would have been shocked at, uh, lot, for lots of different things in this letter. But the number one thing they would have go, said is, did he just say that he carried us into exile? Did the Lord just say, I carried you into exile two times in a matter of three or four verses? No, 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 if you read verse one of chapter 29, it very clearly says that Nebuchadnezzar sent them into exile. But the Lord here two times says, no, it's me that's sending you into exile. Nebuchadnezzar is just a pawn in my hand. And I say that to you because the, the, the reason why they didn't wanna plant there, one, it's Babylon. 
It's not what they dreamed of. It's not what they hoped for. And some of you, you're, you're, you're living in a season and a place that's not what you hoped for. And you're going, I don't, I don't know if I wanna put any roots down here or not. You know, it's like that first apartment you move into after college. You're like, I don't know if I wanna put any nail holes in the wall or not. I'm not planning to be here for too long. And the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and he goes, no, put some stuff up on the walls. Anchor in. I've sent you here. You're not here by accident. You're not here because you needed to come help some family member that was in Atlanta and you just happened to get to Atlanta. You're not here because your husband's job got transferred and now you're here. You're not here because your kids have to go to a different school and you had to move. None of that. You're here because the sovereign hand of God planted you here for now. So plant and seek the welfare of this city. Move in, unpack the boxes, put some stuff on the walls, expect the opposition, embrace the city, love the people, serve the community, pray for them, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, activate your heart and your hands on behalf of the city. Number four, lastly, we see in this text that meeting the physical needs of the people paved a way for them to have their spiritual needs met. The temple had been rebuilt for years, Zerubbabel led that charge in Ezra chapter three. And some 13 plus years later, the physical needs are taken care of. You're like, what do you mean the physical needs? Well, well, the wall that protected Jerusalem was safety. It very much was a physical need, it was protection. It allowed them to live there in safety and not think the same thing that just happened to them is immediately gonna happen to them again. And so the temple had been rebuilt, but for 13 plus years, there still was this, uh, something was off in, in the people of God that, that, that their physical needs weren't met, but also spiritually they were off. And when Nehemiah comes in, he comes in and he restores their physical need. And it paves the way for the people of the city to have their spiritual needs met. If you look over in chapter nine of Nehemiah, you'll see an amazing three verses. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse one. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Glad some of the cultural norms have changed. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And I love it because when you read Nehemiah, you realize in Nehemiah chapter one, when he gets the report, his immediate gut reaction is to do what? It says that he fasted. It says that he prayed. He, he's repenting and confessing his sins before God and he's worshiping God. And then nine chapters later, you get to chapter nine and what, what Nehemiah first led the way in, now all the people have followed. They're fasting, they're praying, they're confessing their sins, and they're worshiping the Lord. In chapter 10, verse 29, they decide to make an oath to God, and they say this, we promise to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Meeting their physical need paved the way for them to have their spiritual needs met. When you look across the landscape today of our world, of our city, it doesn't take you too long to see that our city is hurting and broken. The people who fill it are hurting and broken. They are in need of hope. They are in need of what we have. They are in need of the person 
of Jesus. I recently read this book someone sent me entitled How to Know a Person. It's written by David Brooks, who's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. And the book's all about how we can see people better and, and know people, but he lists a few of the stats currently going on in America. And it broke my heart. And it's as if, you know, when, when Nehemiah gets the report of how are the people in the city doing, when I, when I read this, it's just like, it's like me getting a report of how the people are doing. And, and I want you to just see a few of these things that he lists. Between 2009 and 2019, 10-year gap, the percentage of teens who reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 37%. By 2021, it had shot up to 44%. The percentage of Americans who say that they have no close friends has quadrupled in the last 30 years. In 2013, Americans on average spent six and a half hours a week with friends. By 2019, it was down to four hours a week, 38% drop. By 2021, as the COVID pandemic was easing, only two hours and 45 minutes, a 58% decline. The General Social Survey asks Americans to rate their happiness levels between 1990 and 2018, before the COVID craziness, the share of Americans who put themselves in the lowest happiness category increased by more than 50%. People are hurting, people are broken, people are lonely. They are greatly troubled and distressed. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And this is our city. This is where God has planted us and declared to us to put down roots and to seek the welfare of the city. Because we know that there is hope for those whose lives are in rubble and ruin. We know that there is hope for all of them. Anybody here that has experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus, you know that at some point your life was in rubble and ruin. And yet somehow we get, we get put back together. We get given a new life by Almighty God. We taste his grace and mercy in our own lives. And then as we start living this out, somehow we just get so secluded into our own little world that when we're driving by people, we forget they're exactly like we were. All the people that fill up your, your building, your office building, all the people that work at your school with you that don't know Jesus, you've got something in common with them. You were where they were. But for the grace of God who touched down into your life, and we know that hope can be found, that hope is a person, that person's name is Jesus and he's available today, that Nehemiah wept over a city and he risked everything to restore the rubble of a broken wall in order to bring the people back to their city. But as the story unfolds, someone else would come who would weep over the city of Jerusalem. One who was greater than Nehemiah. One who was the true Nehemiah, who would give his life in order to save the people from the rubble of a broken world and bring the people back to their God. And we know that that man's name is Jesus and that he came to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. I just kept thinking even in my own life and my own story, for me, for me every, you probably heard me share this story, so I won't share the story, but I got tricked into going to a passion conference. I was told it was a concert. It was a conference. Christian people do that from time to time. Some of you are like, that's how I got here. I was told I was going to brunch, and now I'm here. Um, but I can remember sitting up in the very top nosebleeds 
outside, so mad to be there, but inside there was, there was so much ruin and rubble in my life that I was desperate. Is there any source of hope that could be durable enough to lift up a life as jacked up as mine? And so outside, I just looked like this, but inside I was listening. Is this hope something that could reach even to the furthest place where I am? And I've just sensed leading into today that there's somebody in this room today that you're in that spot. Your, your life, I mean, I've, I've, if you were to ask me to describe my life in 2007, I would have said it's in a million pieces that I can't even find right now. And somebody, somebody in this room feels that same way today. And you really don't need to know that much that we're called to be for the city. What you really need to know today is that God is for you. He sees you exactly where you are. He knows all the rubble. He knows all the ruin. And he has the power to do something about it. That he loved you enough not to leave a palace in Susa, but to leave heaven and come to planet earth. Step into the brokenness to give his life to bring you back home into a relationship with God, into the family of God, where you can have hope restored and life that never ends in Jesus. And you're thinking, what do I have to do? What, what am I gonna have to do? You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is you have to believe in him. And I'm not done with my talk. I've got a few more things left to say, but all day today, I've just sensed right here in this moment, there's somebody right on the brink of going, man, you talk about rubble, I, I relate to that. You talk about life being in ashes and scattered pieces all across the floor. I know exactly what that's like. And you just need to know today, God brought you to church today so that you can know there's hope for you. His name is Jesus. And all you have to do is put your faith in him and you will get a hope that is durable enough to reach even where you are, to lift you up from where you are and to set your feet on a rock, to give you a hope and a plan and a future. That's where this text comes from. Jeremiah chapter 29. So if that's you in this room, just in the middle of the talk, I'm gonna invite everybody to pray just to give you a moment between you and God. If there's, there may just be one person in this room, that'd be awesome. And you go, man, I know exactly what it's like to be in ruin. I know what, exactly what it's like to be in rubble, to be distressed, to be in shame. And if there's hope for somebody like me, if, if there could be restoration for something as broken as me, then I want that. And there is in a person whose name is Jesus. So if that's you, everybody's heads bowed. It's just a moment between you and God. But I'd love to just right here in the middle of the talk, you'll never forget it, to just say, that's me today. I'm in that spot. I'm in a heap of rubble and a pile of ashes and I can't find my way out. But I wanna put my faith and hope in Jesus who can lead me out and can lead me home. If that's you, could I just lead you in a prayer? You just lift your hand up real quick so I could see you. You don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to come down here to the front. I'll just lead you right where you are. I see you right over here. Awesome, thank you. Beautiful. I see you over here. Thank you so much. Awesome. I see you all the way in the top, right? I got you. Thank you. I see you right here. Awesome, thank you, man. Anybody else? I see you. Awesome, thank you so much right up here in the very tip top. I see you right over here. Thank you so much for your hand. Anybody down here across the floor? Awesome, thank you, beautiful, thank you so much. I see you, amazing. 
Let me just lead you in a prayer. I got you over here on the far back right. Thank you. Let me just lead you in a prayer. It's gotta be from your heart. It's gotta be your faith. Just say, Jesus, thank you for breaking through to me today. Thank you for leaving heaven and coming to planet earth. Thank you for stepping into the brokenness. Thank you for living the life that I could not live. Thank you for dying the death at Calvary that I deserved. Thank you for raising from the dead, conquering death, hell, sin, and the grave so that there could be hope for someone like me. And today, God, I wanna turn away from all the lesser things I've been trusting in, all the things that keep letting me down time and time again. And I wanna put my faith, and I wanna put my hope, and I wanna put my trust, and I wanna put my future in your hands today. And I wanna say, Lord, you be the Lord of my life. You lead me on, and you lead me home. And then you could just thank him for what he's done in your life. Beautiful. Man, let's just thank God for saving people right here in this moment. We're, we're almost done. Um, so in, in Luke chapter 8, there's this crazy story at the end of the chapter. There's a demon-possessed man. Uh, Jesus heals him. And when he gets healed, he says to Jesus what you or I would say to Jesus. He says, and everybody else in the gospel said to him, he says, hey, can I follow you? And it's interesting because you would think, Jesus, you've heard the words before. Jesus said, come follow me to the disciples, that the invitation of Jesus is come and follow me. And yet for this man, Jesus says, no. Interesting, isn't it? He says, no, I want you to go home. I want you to go back to your town. I want you to go back to your city. And I want you to declare there all that the Lord has done for you. And for us today, maybe God will call you somewhere else. And the invitation surely is for us to follow him. And maybe he'll lead you far and wide. Or maybe he'll lead you right here. And you'll plant and you'll put down roots. And you'll declare to a broken, hurting city all that the Lord has done for you. So that they can believe that that same Lord could do it for them. I want to give you a few practical challenges, like uber practical, and I know nobody's probably going to do these. So just humor me. My job is just to give them to you. Between you and God, if you do any of them, I just felt like we needed some practical takeaways at the end of being for the city, okay? So here's number one. I, I know it's crazy. I know you're not going to do it, but here, here we go. Number one, what if for one week, okay, just for one week, till we gather again next Sunday, what if we all committed to every time that we're in the car, we did not listen to music and we did not listen to podcasts? You're like, what will we do? We'll go crazy. What if we realize that for some of us, it is the greatest opportunity to see the city? And what if instead of just going back into our own little world of all of our preferences that we like and are comfortable with, what if we decided, no, for the next seven days, anytime we're in the car, it's gonna be me calling on heaven. So for me, uh, it's me getting off of this exit right here and looking over at the Home Depot uh, corporate building and going, there are thousands of people that are going to work in that building. And most of them have no idea that there is a God who loves them, that there is a God who came to planet Earth to pay the, 
pay the debt for their sin and shame. And I'm praying right now, Lord, that you would raise up leaders in that building that love you. I'm praying right now that the wind of heaven would blow in that building, that somehow unexplainably people would just come to faith in the Home Depot building right here. And I wanna invite you into that. Wherever you go, I don't know what your commute looks like, but what if as you're driving, you just would go, for one week, there's gonna be silence coming to me from my music and my podcast and all the things that I enjoy, and I'm gonna use this time to see the city and to seek the peace and prosperity of the city by calling on heaven. Maybe for you, are like, well, my commute is, um, I go to the carpool line. Great, what a great place to pray. You just be in the carpool line. And you go, God, I don't know who's driving this minivan in front of me right now, but I wanna pray over their family. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know where they are. I don't know what they need, but I know that you created them. I know that you love them. I know that they need you. And so I'm praying right now that in their family, in their kids' lives, in their marriage, in their family, in their career, you would touch down in their life. What if we all, I know we're not gonna do it, but what if we all did that for seven days? Boy, it'd be powerful. Number two, this one's even a little bit crazier. And this is how we know we're in 2024. What if for one week, we could refuse to use any convenience that removes you from connecting with real people? You're like, well, how are we supposed to go to the grocery store? You just get in the longer line where there's still a human being that checks you out and you gotta ask them their name and they're gonna ask you their name. I know, it's just, I know that's crazy. And it's, it's not about not having a convenience. It's about we, we, what we've actually done in a lot of societies. We've positioned ourselves to miss out on the contact and interaction with people God's putting right before us. There's people at your gym that sit behind the desk when you come in and they're playing some game on their computer and you come in and you walk up to a foot and a half away from their face. You do your little key fob and you walk right by them. It's like, this is a human being made in the image of God. You were just 18 inches from their face. And what if for one week we just said, no, for this week, I'm gonna just say, hi, how are you doing? What's your name? Elizabeth, great. Grant, nice to meet you. Thanks for being here today. And then in your heart, you go, for the next seven days, I'm calling on heaven for Elizabeth. Be powerful what God might do. Number three, you could join us for prayer, Tuesday morning, 7 a.m., Thursday, via Zoom. Number four, you and your family could take a step towards serving the city. Maybe that's as simple as inviting a neighbor over for dinner who might, who might be lonely. Maybe it's helping a family who's in need around you. Maybe it's going to loveatlanta.com and finding one of the many opportunities we have to serve our city through our partner organizations and you and your family signing up and going to do one of those. But let's activate our hands and our heart. Let's call on heaven for the city and let's be willing to be part of the answer to that prayer as God moves in our city. Let me pray for us as we close. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.